Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Today, we're going to wrap up 1 Thessalonians and dive right into 2 Thessalonians. That's not my normal MO. I usually like to put a nice uh, wrap up one book neatly and then we'll uh, start in on another one clean. But we're doing it this way for a couple of reasons. It makes sense because Paul very likely wrote these letters practically back to back. I mean, within a few weeks of each other while he was still in Corinth. And uh, we'll get into it in a little bit. But the other reason we want to forge ahead with this is because the subject matter is similar. He's got more to say about the last days. You remember we looked at that last week in a message called The Return. This is called The Return Part 2. He addresses it from another angle. So, uh, but we'll... Without going too far down that, we'll wrap up First Thessalonians first and, uh, and, and look at his closing remarks. And remember, he has written this wonderful, encouraging, and grateful letter thanking God that the Thessalonians have held up so well under pressure. They've been so faithful to Christ after such a short period of discipleship under Paul. Remember his visit, his initial visit, visit had been very short. And they have borne up under persecution. They have participated in the Great Commission. And they have grown. He praises their love walk, which is a mark of real maturity. And he uh, encourages them, reminds them to walk in sexual purity. And then he addresses, this is last week, their concern about the apparent delay in Christ's return. The Thessalonians were pumped. They were eager. And the reason they were so uh, zealous about sharing the gospel with their, with their neighbors, neighboring uh, regions and countries, was because they were convinced Jesus was coming back like now, any minute, next week, next month for sure. And their whole focus was on the second coming. And when people, as people do, die, when they died around them, they're like, oh no, they missed the second coming. What's going to come... It's like, uh, and they had a vague understanding of the resurrection, but it was like, no, this is all those of us who believe now, uh, so shortly after Jesus' ascension, we must be here to see this, and those who die miss out. So Paul writes what we read last week to correct that, say, no, 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 it doesn't matter. Whether you live, whether you're, uh, whether you're, uh, have, whether you have shuffled off this mortal coil, whether you've moved out of this earthly tent, whether you're dead and buried when Jesus comes back, or whether you are alive and remain when Jesus comes back, none of that matters when he comes back. Because for those of us who have trusted in him for salvation, our destiny is the same. We shall ever be with the Lord from that moment. So we'll pick it up again. Uh, we'll pick it up here in, and it kind of comes off of that subject before he gets back into it in the next letter. And we'll try to, to wrap up chapter 5 fairly quickly. Uh, pick it up in verse 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, the primary application here is pretty clear. He's talking about respect and appreciation uh, for spiritual leaders, your pastors, your elders. Uh, and you guys do a great job of that. Last week, uh, 
wrapped up Pastor Appreciation Month, and as usual, you flooded us with some wonderful cards and some gifts and some notes. And so you and you guys have uh, this church is pretty healthy in that regard. By and large, you do a great job of honoring those who labor among you uh, as leaders. I've always felt appreciated and honored by most of you. Uh, It makes my job easier, which we'll come back to here in a second. You can take a little bit broader view of this passage if you want. I think it's important in terms of textual honesty to realize what he is talking about is those who are over you in the Lord. But you can isolate uh, the... the, uh, the phrase, those who labor among you, because I think they're worthy of honor too. I think it's good to uh, appreciate and recognize those who are working uh, outside of the pulpit. Sunday school teachers, ushers, the bookstore, uh, anything that's done in the fellowship hall. There are people, everything that happens here has so many hands in it, so many brains in it that come in and make this happen that we just take for granted. You know, we come in every Sunday to a, there's a clean floor, there's tables set up, there's, there's, there's food out. We come in every, uh, every Sunday and the carpet has been vacuumed. This stuff gets picked up and swept and set up and torn down so many times in a given month. Uh, and you guys are doing that. And we need to appreciate one another. And it's, as in any church, there are a handful, there's a core of people who are here for almost every single one of those things, who have something to do with setting up, cleaning up, tearing down. Uh, the wider we can spread it out, the better. There's room for everybody to serve. But do recognize those who, who simply labor among you. But uh, again, going back to the phrase, over you in the Lord, there is universal uh, agreement among commentators, for instance, that this passage really is talking about overseers, pastors, elders, bishops, etc. And it's important to remember that we, all of us, are the priesthood. We are all ministers. Remember that? The priesthood of the believer. We are all called to ministry. Now, we as a congregation and as a body of believers, we make a distinction between, uh, between what we would call an ordained minister and a lay leader, which, um, and I, th- I think the simplest way and best way to define ordination is the official recognition that God has called and equipped certain individuals to occupy uh, places in what we would call the fivefold ministry from Ephesians 4, right? Prophets, evangelists, uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And to do this, uh, and Paul always made a point of, you know, we've got a right to do this occupationally. He says, remember when we were with you, we worked with our hands so we wouldn't be a, wouldn't be a burden to you, but we really do have a right to be supported by you. So these are specifically who Paul's talking about, those who are in a position, an official position of authority. And, and really this is what he's talking about too, submission and authority, because included in there is not simply to recognize and appreciate, uh, but to esteem them, uh, or those who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. An, an admonishment is not always a pleasant thing, but we recognize and appreciate that as well, right? So... Uh, simply talking about honor where honor is due. It's not about any inherent spiritual superiority. It's about honoring the office and honoring a call to order in the church. And it says, esteem them for their work's sake. There's two sides of this. One is, just as we would say, 
uh, pray for our president, no matter who's in office. It's not about, I'm going to pray for him because I like him. I'm not going to pray for him because I don't like him. I'm going to pray for him because he is my president. He occupies an office that the Bible tells me, commands me to pray for. Uh, And so you esteem me as your pastor because I'm your pastor. But also, for the work's sake, also means so that the work will go forward. Anything you can do to... um, uh, to bless those who are, who are overseers, who are in a position to pour something into your life, anything you can do to make that job easier is good for the people who are being ministered to. Any pressure you can take off, uh, I'll just give you, I've, I've shared this example before, this same pastor that, that used that vile swear word uh, <laughs> as he was uh, getting ready to cast a spirit out of the room. Uh, he, he had some failings as a, as a minister, okay? Uh, for instance, no, I'm not going to list them. He, he just, you know, he had just had some growing up to do and stuff. But he was the pastor of that church, and Beth and I uh, felt absolutely like we were supposed to be there for that season. And I remember going down there through the week. I don't know if I was going to pick up something for Beth or if I was just checking. Uh, but... Um, I, had, uh, I worked very early in the morning and was off by 2 or 3 in the afternoon. So I had uh, late afternoons off. I walk up. I walk downtown to where the church was. And uh, I see, the, and the pastor is out there with a shovel, and he's chipping ice on the sidewalk. And I told him, I said, you know what my work schedule is. If you ever need anything like this done, call me. Oh, and I don't mind doing it. I said, and I appreciate that you don't mind doing it. But if I can do it, I would rather do it and free you up to do pastor stuff. Another time I walked in, and he's, in a, he's got a mop, and he's cleaning up a flooded bathroom. And I said, Pastor, call me if you need stuff like this done. This is something that I can do that will free you up to study, free you up to call people, whatever. Uh, and and I, always, I told him, I, said, I appreciate the fact that you don't mind doing this, but you need to know that I don't mind doing this. Okay? And, and it, so little things like that. Uh, they're, they're a blessing, and again, they allow the work to go forward. Now, uh, and I want to let you know, by the way, I'm telling stories about him. I will not clean toilets. I am above that kind of thing. So if, no, I'm kidding. That's not true. I have, I won, by the way, my team, the very first year that I went to camp, I was a team leader, and my team won the points contest. And the thing that put us over the top was the fact that I put my hand into a clogged toilet to unclog it. A crowd had gathered outside because of the horror of this clogged toilet, and I said, I got this. 50,000 points for my team, first place medal. <laughs> What's that? Then I laid hands on people. <laughs> Who wants this servant anointing? <laughs> then he turns. Uh, let's look at oops, what I do here. He turns to uh, the, the, the brethren again and says, uh, verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Now, it looks, it can kind of look there the way he says, now we exhort you, brethren. After he says, you esteem those highly who labor among you, and we exhort you, brethren. And then talks about, uh, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted. It's almost like he, now he's turning to the, to the ministers, maybe, to the ordained. He's not. He's still talking to the church. S- same word, brethren. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. 
And this word unruly, uh, the best illustration that, that has popped up again and again as I've looked at that is like a soldier who is out of formation. Uh, you've got everybody standing at attention, and you've got one guy standing there with his hands in his pockets, looking around, walking around. He's not where he's supposed to be. Uh, and uh, to correct this sort of attitude, to remind one another that we really are on an important mission here together. It shouldn't, all the correction and all these, this sort of thing shouldn't have to come from the top. It, it, again, it kind of comes down to this submission and honor thing. I can remember, this is only kind of tangentially related. I just remembered it. I was read this. Kip was at camp one year as a counselor. Might have been the first time he came as a counselor. And he had one of the, uh, during free time, most of the counselors have a security post. So that we always make sure that there's really no place a camper can be where there's not a counselor kind of keeping an eye on things. And one place was... Uh, there had to be a guy like in front of the guy's shower house to make sure people weren't in there messing around, taking longer than a three-minute shower or anything like that, but mostly just kind of sitting there and keeping an eye on this area. But there was a lot of traffic because people had to come down this long sidewalk to the shower house and then took a sharp left out to the lodge. So there were kids going back and forth all the time. And uh, some kid who uh, really liked Kip, Kip, Wave at everybody for a second, Kip. I'm, uh, everybody knows Kip, right? Kip Beatty. Maybe one of the top three most likable guys at Living Word. Yeah, he's just one of these guys that... I, I can't think of anybody who wouldn't like Kip Beatty. He's just he's so unassuming, unoffensive. He's funny. Uh, when's the last time you did Pratt fall down the stairs? You still got it in you? Come on up and show... No, don't do that now. <laughs> Anyway, so obviously he, made, he was a big splash with the kids. Uh, they, they want, they like Kip, they want to be liked by Kip. So as this, this young man is coming down here and he's like, hey Kip, how you doing? And gives him a high five. He's, and, and Kip's like, good to see you. Good to see you. And then he looks at me just to be a smarty, not Kip. The, the kid goes, not you though, and starts to walk off. And Kip goes, hey, get back here. Don't diss my pastor. I'm like, Whoa. I, I didn't need that. I wasn't sitting there going, I can't believe that kid said that to me. And Kip knew I wasn't like that. But there was something about Kip that rose up like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to take a pat on the back from you at the cost of you dishonoring this man. I was like, wow, that was, and that was a good thing for him to hear. Uh, Jake Knight, same way. There were some kids back there. And again, this is not a matter of offense. It's not something that I stand on. You guys know that. But uh, a, a, a younger person said, uh, Hey, Scott, is there anything I can do for you? Which I appreciate. And I said, no, I'm okay. And Jake said, there's something you can do for me. You can, give, you can call him Pastor Scott. I'm like, wow. It, it, it's cool that this catches people's, uh, it catches people's attention. And again, I'm not saying, oh, you guys remember now, call me Pastor Scott. It's not about that. It's, it's again about, it's something that, uh, it, it still impresses me when young children Use Mr., Mrs., Ma'am, Sir, that sort of thing, recognizing that there is an order for honor in society. Uh, even if it's like here, if it's Mr., first name, or, or Miss, you know, Miss uh, first name, whatever. Anyway, get, kind of getting off track here. Uh, faint-hearted. The faint-hearted. Actually, the, uh, I think the old King James says feeble-minded. Anybody got an old King James in front of you? Is that what it says? Feeble-minded. Uh, and faint-hearted is actually closer to the meaning. It's um, people who are, uh, actually there was the, the word, uh, 
pusillanimous came up, as, uh, which, is, which is like kind of a fancy way of saying wuss. Uh, <laughs> but it's actually people who are, and, and, and you trust that when people are in a stage like this, they're faint-hearted, that it's something, hopefully, that's a season. But it's kind of indicating there are people of faint-hearted character. When he's talking, for instance, about those who have fallen asleep, and I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, and then goes on to encourage him that when Jesus comes back, those who, are, who sleep in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. But there are some who were so down about this, they were unable to bear the sorrow of having lost somebody. And, uh, and what's he say here? Comfort them. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uh, and then the weak really is, oh, and the faint-hearted also would be the ones who are much more fearful of persecution, even though, again, we know from what Paul has written that the, the Thessalonians have borne up well under that kind of tribulation. The weak, he's really referring to those who are weak in faith and knowledge, not, not obviously those who are physically weaker than the strong ones, but be patient be patient with all. And this implies, I think, uh, that with time and with patience, uh, the unruly will get back in formation. The faint-hearted will become stout-hearted, and the weak will gain strength if we will operate the way we're supposed to do in encouragement and patience. All right, let's read on. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now, quickly, we'll get through these. Uh, abstain, um, see that no one renders evil for evil. Really what he's saying there is don't take revenge. Somebody does something evil to you, don't make it your life's mission to do something evil to them. He's going to explain why in the next letter, so I'll move on. Uh, pray without ceasing. Well, actually, back up a second. Pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. He's already commended them on their love walk among one another. Actually, he's now taking it a step further and extend that love walk to those outside the church. Pray without ceasing. Obviously, are you praying in your sleep? Are you praying every second you're at work? It's not saying you can't ever stop consciously praying. He's saying don't abstain from prayer. Don't give up on praying. Don't stop praying and uh, don't abandon it, all right? Wigglesworth said this. I think Spurgeon said something like it. Uh, Wigglesworth said, somebody asked him with all the miracles and all the, the, the things that had been attributed to his ministry, how much time he must spend praying. You must spend hours praying these long prayers. And Wigglesworth said, I rarely pray uh, as long as 20 minutes, but I rarely go 20 minutes without praying. And this is the thing. It's the cultivating a lifestyle of prayer offering up a quick thank you to God, seeking his guidance. It doesn't, every prayer doesn't have to be kneeling down at an altar for an hour. Uh, it's just, it should be something that is a habit of ours, right? Rejoice always and in all things give thanks for this is the will of Christ for you. Listen, there is always something to rejoice about. Always. 
If you can think of nothing else, please remember that Jesus saved you and Jesus is coming back for you. There's always something to be thankful for. If you can think of nothing else, you can be thankful for the fact that Jesus saved you and Jesus is coming back for you. Right? It is important to see that being thankful in all things is different from being thankful for all things. When it says, for this is the will of Jesus Christ in you, he's not saying, be thankful because Jesus willed this. Whatever this horrible thing is you're going through, you can still thank God for it because obviously it's his will that you have it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, even when the evil one comes in, even when bad things happen, even when you are faced with something that is clearly not God's will, you can still thank God for Jesus. Thank God for your salvation. Thank God for his promises. That's his will. His will is that you remain thankful, that you rejoice always, even as you are battling, even as you are rebuking, even as you are in the process of overcoming the stuff that you cannot be thankful for. Does that make sense? All right. Uh, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. This might be in here because there might have been a glimmer of that among the Thessalonians. You know, Timothy brought back this report. Hey, Timothy, how are the Thessalonians doing? Wow, their love walk is great. Their evangelism is great. They're holding up under persecution. They seem to be a little twitchy about the gifts. Somebody tried to prophesy prophesy and somebody shut them down. Uh, that's kind of like, and this is just kind of conjecture. He's telling them not to do it. Doesn't mean that they, they have done it, but it's in there for a reason. Uh, and it could be, we see uh, hints of this when Paul writes to Corinth, well, more than hints, really. It's a, it's a pretty, pretty clear indication that things were getting out of hand in Corinth. And so maybe what had happened was somebody was getting a little bit carried away. Somebody could never, somebody would, maybe one or two people would show up whenever they gathered and would never speak in English. They only spoke in tongues. Or uh, somebody got up with a prophecy uh, that had everybody scratching their head and that maybe everybody's kind of looking sideways at each other thinking, that's, that's, that's not God, is it, right? So what are we doing this for? And so some people's reaction then would be, let's just don't do this anymore. It's confusing, it's offensive, it's embarrassing. Paul's saying, no, 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 don't do that. Don't despise prophecies. Don't quench the spirit. Remember, those gifts of the Spirit were given to us by Jesus. Right? This is good for us. And if we are going to be the church he has called us to be, we are going to need everything that he gave us. And what he gave us or these gifts. The Holy Spirit brings these gifts. He distributes them as he wills. And we can and should be availing ourselves of them, flowing in them, and benefiting from them. But... What's his, so what about the stuff that makes us despise them or that tempts us to quench? Here's Paul's solution. Test it. Test all things. There's a prophecy. See if it lines up with the word of God. See if it corresponds with reality. See if it makes sense. And if it doesn't, pitch it. But if it's good, hold fast. If Paul were writing this today, he might write this. Eat the hay. Spit out the sticks. All right? So, the next thing, one of the more famous passages here, one of the famous phrases anyway, abstain from every form of evil. 
I think, again, I think old King James says, abstain from every appearance of evil. And we have really made something out of that over the years. And it's wrong. Okay, there's a, there's a principle there that is still good. There's a principle there that is still wise. But what this verse is saying is every kind of evil. We have made this whole deal where it's so easy to judge somebody. Well, maybe you weren't sinning, but your sin was you looked like you were sinning. And the Bible says to avoid even the appearance of evil. It doesn't say that. Okay, let me give you an example. I heard a guy who's been a blessing to me. He's also been a headache to me. I'm not going to say who it was, but uh, he tells the story. And, and one of the ways he's been a headache is, frankly, he's a little bit self-righteous. Okay, that's, that's, that's it. Love him. Absolutely a brother. Absolutely a minister. But heard a story years ago from him where he was talking about uh, uh, some, when his boys were young, uh, he had some friends come over, and then uh, a little bit later... He met, he was talking to his, uh, the friend's parents, and they said, oh, we were surprised to find, uh, to learn that you had alcohol in your home. And he said, we don't have alcohol in our home. Well, the boys said they saw some wine in your cupboard. And he said, I got to thinking, and what they had was a bottle of that Welch's sparkling grape juice, you know, that comes in, looks like it's wrapped like a bottle of champagne. It's all over the place this time of year, Okay. And he said, and I made the decision right then and there that we would never, ever have another bottle of that in our house because it gave somebody the wrong idea. Now, I could back this up a couple steps and say, first of all, we could have a pretty long discussion about whether it was a sin for you to have a bottle of wine in your house. Frankly, I see nothing in the Bible that says that. If you are personally convinced that you should never drink alcohol, then you should never drink alcohol. But as far as having a bottle of wine in your house, let's start there. Number two, it wasn't wine. It was sparkling grape juice. Somebody made a mistake. You are not sinning by having sparkling grape juice in your house because somebody else thought it was something else. I'm, I'm really making a big deal out of that because I love that sparkling grape juice. And we will be having some by our fireplace several nights this Christmas. All right? This, this season. Sorry, Randy, not just Christmas. Every time we go to the store, I have to tell them, no, not yet, or no, we don't, need to, we don't need to get three bottles of the sparkling grape juice every time we come to the store because it goes fast. Another example, this was from one of my Rama instructors. They were doing something. They were preparing, I don't know if it was a punch or if it was a recipe. For some reason, they needed some seltzer water or tonic water or something. They were in a hurry, and the only close place to get it was a liquor store. So somebody went to the liquor store. Went in, got it, and sure enough, somebody saw a Rayman instructor walking out of a liquor store with a brown paper bag. And word traveled fast. Now, that might be something where you might want to exercise a little bit of wisdom. Like maybe it's like, maybe we can find something else. Maybe it's worth going five more minutes down to a grocery store or something. Again, is it a sin? I don't think so. Was it unwise? Probably, you know. Uh, it's, but, but these are things that we can... They have to be, they have to settle down into a matter of conscience. It also has to settle, settle down into how visible a person. It's one thing if, if a Ramah student, who only a handful of people knows, goes in and gets uh, some seltzer water from a liquor store. If Pastor Hagen walks into the liquor store to get some seltzer water or Doug Jones or something, somebody's going to notice it probably. They're, they're, they're Tulsa famous. 
So it's a matter of, you know, again, exercising wisdom, but without getting too hung up on the, oh, I sinned because it says right there in the Bible to avoid every appearance of evil. And clearly this appeared evil to plenty of people. That's not what this verse is talking about. What it really is saying is, don't cut yourself any slack when it comes to your evil versus somebody else's. It's so easy to justify what we consider small evils in our life because we're comparing them to big evils in somebody else's life. And I'm not saying this is a great idea, but it's, it's certainly not as bad as so-and-so. And really, everybody else's sin looks way worse than our own anyway, doesn't it? So let's don't measure it like that. And wraps up, uh, nearly wraps up here with, uh, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. Listen to this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, in verse 23, completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. It's called, talking about sanctification, reminding us that God is the God of peace and uh, that our goal is to preserve, be preserved blameless spirit, soul, and body. This was important because remember there was a huge chunk of Greek society, especially even after they became saved, who thought, well, our bodies don't matter. Our bodies are going to crumble. Our bodies are not eternal. It doesn't matter what we do with them. It led to a lot of sin. He's saying, you preserve, uh, may you be preserved blameless spirit, soul, and body. What? At the coming of our Lord Jesus. He brings it back around again to the imminence of the Lord's return. Verse 25, brethren, pray for us. Once again, this isn't just about you. I'm not just the apostle who has no needs, no concerns. I'm just dispensing wisdom, advice, and grace and peace to you. We need your prayers as well. We live in danger every hour. We're being persecuted. Uh, We can pray for you. You have a responsibility to pray for us. Verse 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Everybody stand up. Just kidding. (gasps) What? What? There is a thing here. <laughs> there, there's something cultural about this. Many, many uh, cultures today in the Middle East, I mean, they just kiss both cheeks, kiss on the mouth. It's not as uh, kissing has a different connotation here in the United States. But if you're going to greet one another with a kiss, make sure it's a holy kiss. If you're going to greet one another with a hug, make sure it's a holy hug. I remember when the hugging culture was brand new, about the time we moved down to Tulsa in the charismatic church, and everybody hugged everybody. And there were always certain people, you know, who just, it's like they took advantage of that particular aspect of the culture. There were some, uh, there were some unholy hugs, okay? There was, uh, I can remember uh, back in the, I guess it must have been early 90s when we used to watch the Fire by Night videos. And do you remember they, they did one where it was kind of like a ripoff of Bill and Ted and these two Christians, uh, they're like time traveling, and they actually went forward into the tribulation. And so they're seeing all these suffering Christians, and there and they're two girls, <laughs> good-looking girls, in this kind of half-burned-down area, and they're huddling in, in these raggedy clothes. And one of them says to the other, check out the tribulation babes, dude. And so they go over there, and they introduce themselves. And... Beth, stand up here. Or Rainy, come up. She, she's got stuff on her lap, but come up here. This is how they, they came up here. And so they, they run over to hug, and they go like this, and the girl leans in and goes, I'll be the girl, and just goes like this. Leans in, just kind of touches shoulders, and then one guy turns to the other and says, whoa, she totally just gave me the platonic A-frame. 
the platonic A-frame. And that sort of became the standard. It's like instead of the full embrace and rubbing bodies, it's just like we're going to lean in, we're going to embrace, but there's going to be nothing sexual about it, nothing sensual about it. Again, let, let God be your be the guide to your conscience here. Don't, don't take something that's holy and turn it into an a opportunity for license. And finally, verse 27 and 28, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Now, moving quickly, I want to at least move through chapter 1 of Second Thessalonians so I can set the stage or introduce Paul's warnings and corrections about the last days and the second coming. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, this, this is again Paul, Silas, and Timothy, sort of co-writing this. This is all of them uh, combining to send this letter to the church of the Thessalonians, and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you abounds, sorry, love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure." Sounds pretty familiar already, doesn't it? Kind of covering a lot of the same ground. Which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Uh Uh-oh. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our Lord, grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of stuff crammed in here, but most of it doesn't require a lot of explanation. Remember, toward the end of the first letter, he told them not to repay evil with evil. Don't take vengeance. Forgo it. Here, he makes it clear that God is fully aware of the suffering that his people are going through and that they are enduring, and he has every intention of returning that trouble on those who are inflicting it. In other words, don't repay evil for evil. Don't take revenge. God will take revenge for you. It's going to be the ultimate vindication. There's going to be a spe- there's this spectacular uh, word picture of Jesus returning with his angels and with fire and in that moment taking vengeance. And notice, they will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. The message here, what, the, the, what they're saying here, it's, it's not this steady flow of destruction that's raining down in fire upon those uh, who have rejected him. Uh, the sentence to the lake of fire uh, is something that's dealt with not here. That's not what we're talking about. He's saying that in that moment, in the moment of the return of Jesus Christ, it is too late for anybody who has rejected him 
to do anything about it. When he comes back, up till that moment, they have time to repent. When he comes back and we all behold him in the fire it, with the angels, it, with the glory of his coming, anybody who has rejected Christ up till that moment, it's, it's too late. At that moment, he cuts them off. Their destruction is to be cut off for good from the presence of God and from the presence of his power. And at that time, those of us who have glorified Christ in our lives, we will be glorified in him. It really will be. You ever feel like, you know, it's, it's like, and I think, I hope we can kind of grow out of it because I, I feel petty when I think this way. But I'll admit, I still feel this way sometimes. I have a heart to see people saved. I love people. I don't want anybody to go to hell that doesn't have to. And so I try when I share the gospel, but when I try to live my faith. And when people make fun of it, whether they're making fun of me or whether I see just somebody on TV or somebody talking about it, speaking dismissively of Christianity, it just, oh man, it makes me mad. What can I do about this? I don't have to do anything about it. I still want to pray for those people that they'll be saved, but if they continue to thumb their nose at the gospel, thumb the, their nose at my Lord Jesus Christ, and they, and they never turn from that way, in that moment when Jesus comes back, it's going to be the ultimate. See? Tried to tell you. This stuff and these people that you've been belittling as a career or as a hobby, suddenly you realize they were all right. And we'll just pity the fool. So, as we wrap this up, let me tell you where Paul goes next. And we'll see where we're going next week. Praise and worship team, you can be coming up here slowly. The concern before was for believers who had died. About believers who had died. Now what's happening, and the text will bear this out, that apparently there are letters that have been written prophecies that have been delivered, rumors that have been spread that Jesus has already returned. Okay? Now, Paul, what he's going to do is take the route of explaining to them that there are things to happen first. There's maybe a little bit of a panic. Hey, Paul, we're getting word that that, that we missed it, that Jesus is already back. Now what? And Paul's like, no, 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 no. You won't miss it. And you know you haven't missed it because this hasn't happened. The man of sin hasn't appeared. The great falling away, the great apostasy hasn't taken place. Those things absolutely have to happen before he comes back. So don't believe anybody who tells you that Jesus has returned if this other stuff hasn't happened yet. Um, But he has already, in the passage we just read, said something crucial. Now, I don't know how many. God only knows how many false Christs there have been since this letter. But there are several right now. There's a Wikipedia article, list of people who claim to be Jesus. Several of them alive right now. There's a guy in Siberia who's got like 5,000 followers. There's another guy down in, I don't know, Miami or someplace. And they're, they're not just saying, hey, follow me, I got a great religion. They're saying they're Jesus, that they are the second coming of Jesus. And they have managed somehow to convince people that he came back secretly or that what Jesus really meant by a second coming was some type of reincarnation, more like a Dalai Lama type thing. He's the next incarnation of Jesus. Now, we talked about last week, we mentioned this, and we've mentioned it before, there was something important said at the ascension. 
when Jesus wrote, went into the sky, the angel said he's going to come back the same way. It'll be physical. It'll be visible. It'll be public, not secret. Paul here has just described in some pretty vivid detail. And John, the revelator, will give us some more details when we get there. When we look at these guys, you know, look at, look at the detail here. <laughs> He's going to come back. He mentioned in the first letter, on the clouds, here with all of his angels, with flaming fire. Now, there's something about these guys. We can laugh and say, what about these idiots? Why are they following people? Uh, who claimed to be Jesus. You know, there was, there was Jim Jones, Sun Young Moon. There are people just, just in my lifetime, there are many people. Manson, uh, they all claimed to be Christ or some sort of incarnation, and some people followed them. Why? Because there was something charming, something convincing. It wasn't just a bunch of complete idiots that, that followed them. There was something that drew them. But we have to have, we always have to measure that against something else. One of my favorite stories from Canaan land is when Mylon Lefebvre came and spent a morning with us teaching and sharing a little bit about his testimony. And man, when he got on this topic, he was like, you will hear. He says, believe me, I've run into him my whole life. He says, people who come up and claim they've got a special revelation from God, or more specifically that they know Jesus has already come back. You need to come here and meet him. You need to see him. He came back this way. And he said, listen to me. If he's not coming back with all of his angels and flames of fire, uh, fire and clouds of glory for the whole world to see, it's not Jesus, pal. How do you know this isn't Jesus? Because I didn't see the sky split and I didn't see him pouring through the sky with all of his angels and flames of fire. That's how I know it's not Jesus. The thing is, one day, that really is going to happen. Heaven's split wide. And he comes through riding on a white horse, a sword for a tongue, all of his angels. And we who are alive and remain will rise up we'll be with him. Those who, the dead in Christ will rise first. And we're going to be glorified in him in that moment. And it's going to happen like that. And it's going to happen soon. Again, they were convinced back then it could happen any day. I don't know how convinced we are of that anymore. Certainly a lot more prophecies have been fulfilled. Is the man of, has the man of sin been revealed? Not on a scale like I think he's going to be. I believe he's alive at this moment. The Antichrist. There's certainly a spirit of Antichrist in the world today. Uh, the great apostasy. Good grief, it's in the newspapers. People abandoning the faith in record numbers. Say, well, Scott, people are coming to the Lord in record numbers. I'm not arguing with that. He didn't say people would stop coming to the Lord. He simply said that many would fall away. And they are. They're just falling away. They're walking away. So we're close. So what's my altar call message? Same as it was last week. You've got to be ready. We have got to be ready. I encourage and I admire people who search this stuff out, who want to know the, the, the grounds for believing before they commit their life to it. But it doesn't take a lifetime of searching that out. It doesn't. Their answers are so available they're abundant and there are people we need i need to find a there there are videos out there there's audio out there i need to find maybe the best one the best one i can get my hands on to show this maybe some wednesday night maybe some sunday morning but most of you've heard these stories 
in uh, Muslim countries where there are people, you know, we've, we've got a very narrow view of what Islam is. And we think all, every, every uh, Muslim in the world just wants to declare jihad and wipe out Christianity and kill all the Jews. Most of them aren't like that. Most of them are secular. They don't have a deep understanding or a deep love for the Quran. It's just their culture. And there are people who just want to be right. And they have not, they don't have access to the apologetics material that you and I have. They don't have access to, to people who have the answers to these questions. But there's something in their heart and they simply pray. God, I want to know who you are. And do you know what happens as a result? Jesus Christ himself appears to them in a dream. And they get saved, radically, completely, thoroughly converted. So if you really do want to know, he's not hard to find. He is not hiding from you. His heart's desire is to reveal himself to you. But when he does, it's up to you to respond. Well, okay, I'm convinced. So someday I probably need to make that decision we say last week today is the day of salvation now is the accepted time don't waste another day if you've not committed your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ if you've not personally received that gift of eternal life if you've not made him your Lord today is the day I'm going to pray a prayer to close this message when I'm done praying they're going to start singing when they start singing you desire to have that experience to be born again to be saved Come up here and let me pray with you. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.